Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today I'm very, very excited to have Kurt Braddock on the show, and he is going to be talking about his new book, Weaponized Words, the Strategic, excuse me, the Strategic Role of Persuasion in Violent Radicalization and Counter-Radicalization. So first of all, welcome to the Loopcast, Kurt. Thanks, Chelsea. Happy to be here. So Kurt Braddock is an assistant professor of public communication in the School of Communication at American University in Washington, DC. And he is also a faculty fellow in the School of Communications Center for Media and Social Impact in the Polarization and Extremism Research Innovation Lab, also at American University. So um, fellow AU compadre, I guess we could call it. Yeah, and fellow, fellow peril uh, worker. That's true. Yes. Feral, yeah, yeah. Fellow peril worker. Yes. So it's great to have you on the show, not just because you are a fellow colleague, but also this book is fantastic. I have read it. I have cited it many times already in different PhD required things I've been going through. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited to discuss it. So why don't we start off with talking about how the inspiration for this book came about? Um. The short answer is dissatisfaction. Um, and I know that sounds very negative, but let me let me elaborate a little bit. So um, if you know my work at all, you know that I really have a, an, a focus on the applied. I think that any work that gets done, um, not just in terrorism studies or anything related to political violence, but in any field, uh, even if it's primarily theoretical, it should have some use to people who need it. And um, I found in terrorism studies, there were some people doing research on communication and terrorism, but most of that focused on how the media handles terrorism and how the media handles uh, radicalization processes. But there was this kind of extensive history of work in persuasion that talked about how people are induced to engage in behaviors, to adopt attitudes in all kinds of different areas. But nobody really applied the theories that we've just had sitting there for decades to understanding why and how people come to adopt ideologies that support the use of political violence. So it seemed like just an opportunity to take some of these basic theories that we've used in communication. And they're not all communication theories. I mean, narrative theory is and inoculation theory is. But also in the book is like reasoned action theory and theories of discrete emotions. And those aren't uh, communication theories per se, but they, they affect communication processes. So the book is really born out of uh, a desire to take these theories that we've just had sitting on the shelf and have applied to health communication, political communication, interpersonal communication, and apply it to an area where I think there's a, there's a, a large need to, to understand how people are persuaded by, by terrorist propaganda. And that's kind of what made me lay everything out there and to say, here's how these theories explain these processes. And I think for me, that's one of the things I really was excited when I started reading your book is that I do originally come from more of a calm background, communication calm for short. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there are all these amazing theories and, while they might be applied to different types of communication that's beyond the terrorism or radicalization field, they really can apply to that as well. So it was great seeing you transfer them into a field that has, to an extent, lacked that. Yeah, I would agree that it's lacked that. Um, I mean, rightfully so. The terrorism studies communication researchers have primarily looked at how terrorists have used the media to kind of amplify their messaging. Because, I mean, the old adage is terrorists don't want a lot of people dead. They want a lot of people looking. Um, so, I mean, th that's a huge area of research, and rightfully so. But the, the way that communication and psychology intersect when somebody engages with a message, I mean, that's, that's how we explain how messages have effects. And we know that propaganda terrorist propaganda, different types of terrorist messaging, um, whether it be on a mass scale or kind of a medium scale or even on a small interpersonal scale, it has effects. So it just made sense to me to take uh, what 
people who are much smarter than me have already done in other areas of communication research and just apply it in this new domain. So it, I wasn't really reinventing the wheel. I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of taking what's been done and put it in this context so we can learn some new things about these processes that still, they still elude us a little bit. So let's discuss these processes. So how does communication play a role in the development of extreme views as well as the process of radicalization. What are these effects that you were dis just discussing? Well, this this will get us into the classic uh, radicalization and its relationship with terrorism uh, debate, the old Sageman-Hoffman debate. And I mean, it, it's been so long since I thought about it. Um, I think uh, Hoffman is the one who says that terrorists are usually made terrorists by engaging with leadership. They're recruited and they they engage with things that pull them into the group, right? And Sageman says, no, it has more to do with, it's a bottom-up process where people engage in, in their social networks and as a function of their engagements with people who have similar uh, beliefs and, and are involved in these networks that are, are prone towards violent behavior, that's how people get involved. Now, I think this is a false dichotomy because it's never an either or. And we talk in terrorism studies, we talk about things in these black and white terms as if we know it's always one thing or always another. And I don't think that's the case. But um, I'm interested in kind of how messages that are delivered by terrorist groups, whether it be leadership or, or some other subordinate in the group, and how that affects the ways that people become involved. So when we talk about how communication affects radicalization processes, we're really just talking about persuasive processes and the, the theoretical kind of principles that underlie persuasive processes generally, kind of the things we know about persuasion, we have known about persuasion since, you know, the propaganda studies of, from World War I and World War II. I mean, they still hold. The reason that people are persuaded by messages that are meant to sell bath soap are the same ways that people become persuaded to, you know, consider looking up more information about the far right online, or maybe watch um, beheading videos on YouTube, which can take them down a rabbit hole. So, I mean, the principles of persuasion to hold, no matter what context you're looking at, it's just that in some, the implications are a bit different. The content is very different. And the, uh, the outcomes that are meant to be induced are very different. So when we talk about radicalization and then we talk about terrorism, I think there's a tendency to talk about them as if they're these special things that, that are up. I mean, they're not on a pedestal because they're good. They're, they're up on a pedestal because they're different. And I'm not so sure that's the case. I mean, they're different in that they're very statistically rare, but the, the theoretical underpinnings of how they occur are the exact same as how persuasion occurs elsewhere. So I think communication is a fundamental uh, building block of how radicalization occurs. It's about engagement with messaging. It's about um, kind of psychologically uh, processing that messaging and then acting on, on as a result of engaging with that messaging in one way or another. And it might be statistically rare, but the process that drives it is the same that, pro that drives persuasive processes anywhere else. I completely agree with that because in some of my own research, I, I look at even marketing tactics are very much, you can apply them to extremist or terrorist organizations and their messaging because it all, it all works in the same way. Exactly. So, yeah. So let's discuss some of these really amazing theories that you highlight in your book that help this process and why they're so important. Sure. Let's fire away. I mean, there's what, four, I think I use in the book. I yes. think, uh, shall I go in order of what the chapters? Sure, that sounds good. Oh, man, it, it's, it's almost a shame that I've worked so long in the book that I remember the order of the chapters and without even looking at the book. Okay, so, <laughs> so chapter three was narratives and counter-narratives, if I recall. Um, so in communication, narrative theory dictates that um, people can be persuaded by narratives or in more common terms, although narrative theorists would kill me for saying so, stories, um, because they give us characters and they give us plots that we can identify with and we can be kind of psychologically transported into. And as a function of those transportation and identification processes, um, we're more prone to persuasion by the message that is embedded in the narrative 
because maybe a character has that we identify with has those beliefs or attitudes, or maybe because we've been transported into the story, we don't realize that somebody's trying to persuade us with the messages embedded in the story. So when you read a story or in more technical terms, engage with a narrative, um, you're less likely to fight back against messages that otherwise you might fight back against if they were presented just as arguments. Should I move on? Should I just go through all the chapters here? Why don't we do that? That would be great. Sure. I didn't know if you wanted to follow up. No problem. That's Sully. Sully says hi by snoring in your ear. Hi, Sully. <laughs> so, and for listeners, Sully is my French bulldog who is currently sleeping on my lap. Um, so um, my current pet theory, inoculation theory, uh, inoculation theory is, a, is not really a theory of persuasion, but a theory of counter persuasion, which is why it's so appealing to me. And it's based on a biological metaphor that just in the same way that you can develop antibodies to a disease by introducing a small dose of that disease to the body, you can resist or you can help people to resist ideas by introducing a small bit of those ideas to the person in a very specific way. And that specific way is to A, make the person think as though the beliefs they hold are, are under threat of changing. And B, presenting people with counter arguments to the things they might encounter that will change their current beliefs and attitudes in the real world. And research shows that if you do that, a person is more likely to defend against future persuasive attempts to change their beliefs and attitudes. So, I mean, this research, inoculation research, goes back to the 1960s, and nobody had, had tested it in whether it can block radical viewpoints. So, um, a couple of years ago now, I conducted a controlled study where I, I tested it and I found that when you inoculate people um, by telling them, listen, we know you have safe beliefs and attitudes. We know you're not violent, but there's this violent group out there that is going to try to persuade you to be violent and then tell them what the group says and then counter argue against it, that people are more likely to A, resist the messaging via psychological reactance, which is a combination of anger and counter-arguing. Um, B, they perceive the group, the extremist group, to be less credible. And the very cool thing was I found that when you inoculate them, they're less inclined to support the extremist group whose propaganda they read. So across the board for me, I found inoculation helps to prevent um, what I would call in the, in the study violent radicalization. So um, I present that in the book. I, I do kind of a step-by-step -step series of uh, protocols for how to develop and tailor inoculation messages for different types of ideologies. Um, and that chapter and that work has actually gotten a bit of traction lately. There's a lot of people seem, seem to like that one at the moment. Um, following inoculation, I do another chapter, which incidentally is going to be the foundation of my next book. Um, this one is on reasoned action theory. And reasoned action theory is not a communication theory, but more a, a theory that shows how people come to engage behaviors more generally. And what reasoned action theory shows, and I'll try to keep it simple because it's a pretty multifaceted theory. It shows that um, somebody's behavior is largely predicated on what their behavior intentions are. And I know that sounds silly, but most research has shown that behavioral intentions is the most proximal meaning the closest predictor of behavior. So, okay, cool, we got that. But what predicts intentions? Well, research shows what predicts intentions are three things. One, somebody's attitude about the behavior itself, whether or not they think it's good or bad. Two, their perceived norms related to the behavior. So what do they think their friends and their family think about the behavior? And do their friends and family actually engage with the behavior themselves? And um, I say friends and family, but it can really be any valued others. And three, something called perceived behavioral control. So what that means is somebody's beliefs that they actually have the power to do a behavior if they're given the opportunity. So what predicts those? Um, what predicts those are background factors. So somebody's socioeconomic status, the messages they're exposed to, their religion, all kinds of things that um, old not old, but classic theories of, of radicalization might call root causes are, are what predict those. So in describing reasoned action theory, 
I argue there's these critical hinge points in the theory where you can target um, specific messages um, to use reasoned action theory to keep people from engaging in behavior and in violent behaviors. One of which being perceived norms, you can make them think that they're valued others do not value violent behavior. The other being perceived behavioral control, tell them that they're unable to engage in the behavior. Or on the other hand, try to promote positive behavior. Let make people think that their valued others actually appreciate nonviolent behavior or make people think that they are empowered to engage in nonviolent behavior rather than violent behavior. So reasoned action theory is a very cool theory in that there's so many elements to it and there's so many opportunities for message development and promote nonviolence in place of political violence. And finally is discrete emotions. And this is my favorite theory to teach to students because it's based on something called evolutionary psychology where, where um, our emotions are basically these evolved responses to environmental stimuli. And in, in that chapter, I basically go through, I think nine different emotions and let's see if I can get them all, I probably won't. Happiness, sadness, hope, guilt, fear, anger, jealousy, contentment, and there's one more I always forget. So there's one more in there, I can't remember. Uh, oh, pride, pride, look at that. And um, I go through each discrete emotion and I describe how they're used in terrorist propaganda for the purposes of recruitment and radicalization. And I also talk about how you can use and, and leverage those emotions and counter propaganda to challenge terrorist propaganda. So that's a kind of a bird's eye view of the four different, the kind of the main meat of the book is those four chapters. And in each chapter, I talk about ways to use what we know about those theories and perspectives to guide the development of counter-messaging. Thank you so much for that overview. I know it's a bit of a long talk, but I think for our listeners that haven't come across these theories, it will be very helpful. So why don't we talk about how these theories can be applied to the real world in the sense of counter narratives, counter messaging, because the one thing I love about your book is it's definitely strongly based in academic theories and academic research, but yet you bring in real world cases and everything is very applicable to both academia and individuals that are practitioners or law enforcement. So it's a book that can really help multiple entities help counter violent extremism. Yeah, so my goal with the book, or at least something I tried to avoid, because I'm very prone, very, very prone to something a, uh, an old friend of mine used to call Kurt speak, which is basically academic prose for the sake of academic prose. So I tried to make it accessible, not just to uh, academics, who, who understand kind of how to write theoretically and such, but, you know, the people on the ground that are going to need to be able to develop this, these messages and to just any person who's interested in the ways that terrorists try to recruit and radicalize people. Um, I remember when I first got interested in terrorism research, um, it was kind of all, all the books on it were in the wake of 9-11 were all kind of case studies about Al-Qaeda, um, kind of the German Red Army faction. There was very little with respect to kind of psychological processes and what drive them. So I want to make sure that people who just kind of go to Barnes and Noble and find a book, um, they can read it and they can enjoy it and maybe learn something about it. But for the practitioners themselves, um, as, as you mentioned, each of the chapters uh, in the second half of the chapter has kind of a series of guidelines for, for understanding how the different theories and the different perspectives can be uh, used to tailor counter messaging. So um, I'll use the example of inoculation because that's where I am right now. Um, as I said, inoculation has those two specific uh, steps, one being to elicit threat and the other to um, provide counter arguments against the arguments they will encounter. Um, but I mean, those are two pretty big steps and there's a lot of theory behind them and as to why there are critical elements of inoculation. So um, in the second half of the inoculation chapter, I just go through step by step saying, okay, we want to elicit threat on the part of our audiences. What if our audience is going to be targeted by, I believe I use um, jihadist uh, messages. I think he's in that chapter if I'm not um, forgetting. So I'm saying, okay, you understand your audience is going to be targeted by this messaging. What kind of behavior, what kind of beliefs and attitudes 
do they hold now that we want to protect? So you go to them and say, listen, we know you're not violent now, but here are the messages that you might encounter and they've been persuasive to people like you. So it's very much about tailoring the messages to the audience that you're going to target with this counter messaging. And I hope, I mean, Chelsea, you can tell me better than I could, I could say, because if I'm being honest, I haven't looked at the books since I wrote it. I couldn't bear to look at it again. But, <laughs> but um, I, I tried to, to instill or empower people to develop their messages. And I tried to instill the idea that to develop proper messages, you need to understand your audience. And I think that's, a, that's something that's sorely lacking in a lot of the counter messaging that gets done is that we don't have comprehensive understanding about the audiences we're targeting. So there's all these steps to, to engage in or all these steps to develop this messaging in a way that's A, theoretically sound and B, practical for the sake of uh, for development on the ground, which is where this sort of thing gets done. And I think you've really done a great job in that sense in this book. And it's kind of my mantra whenever people talk about extremism and, and counter messaging extremist groups, terrorist groups, that like you said, that whole thing in calm is the messenger is the key. And I feel like a lot of campaigns in the past have not exactly taken that on board. Um, and I was wondering if we could actually talk about. Oh, there he is. There we go. That there was he is. past appearance. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Sully so, so just made, he heard something outside and he has to go make himself known. Hey, that's, that's good. Good watchdog. <laughs> But yeah, I was wondering if we could talk about how persuasive techniques can be applies, excuse me, applied, as opposed to some of the explicit argumentation that we've seen in past counter messaging campaigns. And for me, of course, the famous one that pops yep. into my mind is Think Again, Again turn, turn Away, away. Yep. State That's Department, which was a complete mess. So why don't we talk about that a bit? Poor Think Again, Turn Away. It's everybody's whipping boy. <laughs> But um, we, we should also note that the, the organization that was responsible for that has gotten much better at counter-messaging. I mean, technically, the, the organization doesn't exist anymore. They've kind of changed to something else, but they're much better now. Um, but yeah, what you, what you say, Chelsea, is absolutely right in that um, argumentation only gets you so far and usually just gets you people arguing against you. So... Um, the two chapters, uh, chapters three and four, the narrative chapter and the inoculation chapter, um, those two strategies are, they're specifically designed to get around resistance to messaging. So for narratives or counter narratives, it's all about presenting a story to your audience that they'll enjoy, um, that they can identify with, that they're transported into. So they don't, try to tear apart the counter messaging that you have in the actual counter narrative itself. So I've seen some very, very effective counter narratives that have been, that have um, really taken hold at the grassroots level. Um, one of my favorite ones that I'm allowed to mention is um, called Abdullah X. Uh, this was, Yes. I love know, that one. I'm sorry. I was telling my advisor about that recently, but go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he, um, Abdullah X is a fantastic example because um the it's been authored by somebody who was recruited by isis um it's done in this very kind of slick animation type way that i think people would really identify with at the time um i don't think that abdel x had a new episode in a couple of years now um but these stories they talk about this this young muslim in london his experience being recruited by isis um and embedded in the narrative of his story are um peaceful arguments for uh, or arguments for defending Islam in a peaceful way rather than via ISIS brand terrorism. So, I mean, the, the, the arguments are there, but they're not overtly don't do this, which are clearly going to give you backlash. Instead, they're presented in a way where the audience is treated as um, not as a potential um, terrorist, but uh, just as an audience member who is being entertained by what they're reading or what they're watching. Inoculation I like quite a bit because it also assumes innocence on the part of the target, which um, gets around a lot of problems associated with some um, counter-messaging and counter-terrorism uh, initiatives. I mean, the one that often comes to mind, and it's been revamped quite a bit too, is uh, something like Prevent, 
which has a, a counter messaging element. It always has, um, but it was it was critiqued widely for kind of um, criminalizing and then securitizing Muslim communities. But inoculation, instead of saying you're guilty, here's why, here's what you need to do to avoid being jailed or, or hurting people. Um, inoculation begins with, listen, we know you're peaceful. We know that you don't hold these beliefs that are going to drive you to violence. But the problem is there are people out there who are, and they've been very persuasive to people who are just like you. So we don't want to think that we're securitizing you. We're on your team. We're trying to protect you. And it, it kind of treats the, the message target as a victim in their own right, in somebody who's vulnerable to something that they would rather not engage with. So I really like inoculation in that sense, because it, it brings the message target away from being somebody or assuming somebody will become violent. And it assumes that they want to stay peaceful. And I think that that does a lot in, in bridging the gap between security and, and those who, um, who might otherwise engage in violence. And on that point, we did have a really great set of questions. They're both quite short, but from Dr. John Morrison, who also does um, his fantastic podcast, Talking Terror. So I highly recommend that as well. Jomo. <laughs> but he was wondering when it comes to inoculation, um, how effective is attitudinal inoculation in the sense of, can we expect it to last for a certain amount of time? And then following up on that, is it something that potentially has to be regularly topped up? So do we need to put it out there, inoculate, and then in a sense, if we're gonna talk vaccines, which of course the world is right now yeah. because of the yeah. pandemic, do we need that second vaccine eventually? Yeah, so this is a really, really good question and one that's really timely with respect to inoculation and violent extremism because there is a lot of really good inoculation research coming out um, in the health communication domain that's starting to answer some of these questions. Um, for uh, listeners who are interested in inoculation, I would recommend reading the work of uh, Bobby Ivanov, whose work is inspired quite a, my own, uh, quite a bit of my own. Um, I'm going to forget several researchers who I've, uh, I've read. Kim Parker is another one who does a lot of good inoculation research. Um, but the, the people like that who are spearheading inoculation research in health communication are really getting at some of these, these, these questions that Jomo is asking. And for listeners, Jomo is John Morrison. He's a buddy of mine. Um, so this research has shown that um, true to the analogy inoculation does tend to need to be topped up, or if not need, it can benefit from a topping up, but there's diminishing returns where you're using too many resources and you, you, you only get so much good out of an inoculation message. So the good news is inoculation seems to work. Um, it's just a matter of finding out how long after the initial exposure you need to do what some have called a booster shot. So there is, uh, there is new research out there about that, and it's just emerging, so we'll have good answers to that as I test it in the next year or two. Um, another question related to that that a lot of people ask is, um, what do you do if somebody's already been exposed to the ideology? Well, there's uh, another branch of inoculation research uh, called therapeutic inoculation. Uh, where it shows that certain inoculation messages might be effective even for people who've already been exposed. So um, literally, it's, I mean, it's cliche to say, but literally every day, every week, every month, there's new research coming out in health communication that's giving us clues about what we might have to do with inoculation messages over the long term to ensure their effectiveness. So the short answer to Jomo is yes, they generally do need to be topped up, but not um, forever. Uh, research in HealthCom has shown that generally one or two toppings up would, uh, would, would provide a lasting effect. Um, but that's been shown in HealthCom, not necessarily violent extremism. So again, being the empiricist, I think that's something I'm going to have to test. Look, I really look forward to that. Also, can we have too much inoculation aimed at a specific type of ideology, extreme ideology, should I say, or... Um, community that is going through radicalization? Yeah, I mean, I think this question, is this question from a listener? 
No, it's actually for me. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's a good question either way. Oh, um, fantastic. So the, the, I think what you're getting at, and that's why I asked so I could say you, is, um, is any kind of counter-messaging strategy bad in that the, the, those who are targeted by it will start to feel as though they're being criminalized or securitized? And I would say inoculation is no different. Um, but I would also say that inoculation is not a silver bullet and that's the only thing that should comprise a counter-messaging campaign. So I think, or I believe that counter-messaging campaigns geared toward violent extremism need to be multifaceted and containing inoculation messages, counter-narratives. All these tools that we've, we've found that are useful can be used in a singular uh, campaign, but also that online and offline efforts need to be coordinated as well. That way, you're not over-inoculating somebody, you're not over-counter-narrativing somebody, you're not over-argumentationing somebody, um, so that they have these different sources of messaging and different kinds of messaging to drive home a point in a way that's not either exhausting to them or securitizes them. So I would say inoculation is not unique in that you can over-inoculate, but I would say that, yes, it's definitely a consideration when doing any kind of strategic communication campaign for PCBE. Fantastic. Thank you for answering that. Cause I always, in the back of my mind, I mean, I've completely support PCBE. However, I always have a little bit of this apprehension in the back of my mind, cause it does tend to focus on a specific demographic. And I always wonder if that also causes problems because you are hyper-focused on this specific demographic and in a way telling them your views are not correct and we are going to change them, which I mean, any of us can relate that if someone we're talking to tells us that our views and what feels right to us is incorrect, we're, we're automatically gonna put up walls. We're not going to yeah, engage are, in a way openly that we should. You are 100% right, Chelsea, 100% right. And I mean, I can tell being the, the, um, the host, you're trying to be objective, but as the guest, I don't have to be. You're talking about Muslim communities and they've been overly securitized in the sense that a lot of organizations, government and otherwise, have come in, in the post 9-11 world to assume that Muslim communities are um, predominantly the ones at risk of violent radicalization. And we've seen that in policy and legislation that's been passed. And we've seen that, I mean, for 20 years now. Um, I think, I may be wrong, but I think that some are finally coming around to the notion that there are others out there other than Muslims from which violent extremists come. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that I am so interested now in the far right is because in the post 9-11 world, I remember a lot of disgusting arguments to perfectly peaceful Muslims saying, why don't you clean up your backyard? Why don't you take care of this problem within Islam? And those are just terrible arguments. So I, I, I got to thinking, well, why don't white people take care of our backyard? Why don't we, why don't we root out the ones who are causing problems among us? And um, I think the numbers right now tell that radical right-wing extremism is a much, much, much bigger threat than Islamic terrorism in the U.S., so, I mean, before, um, before um, white individuals start casting stones at any communities or before we securitize any communities, I think it's important to kind of look in our own backyards and see what the real threats are. I could not have said that better. And I think that's actually a perfect segue to my next questions and, and concepts. Of course, I'm sure most people that are listening, whether they're here in the U.S. or elsewhere, you can see a lot of polarization taking place in the States right now over lots of different issues that we're dealing with. Um, and there's a lot of discussion, whether it's just through personal connections or the media about extremism. And there tends to be a tendency for people and media to equate left and right-wing extremism, which I want to hear your thoughts. Is this a healthy way to look at extremism and a healthy way to look at polarization in the sense that I feel like a lot of us, even very 
well-educated people that have been in the field forever, we just see a lot of things happening and we can even ourselves get into othering people that we don't agree with their views, which for me is very problematic because we're all in this together. So I want to get your opinion on this. Yeah, I I agree completely. Um, I'm going to preface what I say here with um, two things. Number one, um, I believe that all violence on behalf of well, all terrorism on behalf of political issues, targeting of civilians and, and and the things that we study is wrong, whether it's from the left, the right, single issue, uh, anti-abortion, animal rights, any of these things, violence against civilian and civilian targets is disgusting to me. Um, I'm not so naive as to think that sometimes actual political, geopolitical conflict is is unavoidable. But the targeting of civilians by uh, by terrorist groups, regardless of ideology, um, is absolutely abhorrent. And that's kind of why I'm in this business. That's number one. Um, Number two, I also and Chelsea, you know this about me. um, I am a data nerd. I follow the data and I, I posed research questions and I let the data and the science dictate what the answers are. Um, and I think that I have that luxury as an academic where people in the media and pundits and commentators, um, many of them have a, um, a, a need or a, a requirement to, to remain objective about what is going on with respect to who's violent and who's not. So um, what we're talking about here is the whole both sidesing of, of violent extremism at the moment. And I am not a fan of the both sides, not from a political viewpoint, not from a political perspective. This is irregardless, which isn't a word. This is regardless of my, um, of my political leanings one way or the other. But if you simply look at the data as to who is committing the lion's share of violent activities, who's instigating the most violent activities, the politicians who are saying inflammatory things to instigate violent activities. I mean, you can look at any data set, you can buy any measurable metric, the right is the bigger threat than the left. And there are some who, who try to argue that um, Antifa is as big a threat as groups like the Proud Boys and, and some of the more violent elements of QAnon and, and the Three Percenters and the Oath Keepers and all those. Um, but if you look at the number of attacks that these groups have carried out, the, the right outnumbers them by more than three to one. Um, if you look at the number of individuals who have um, been cataloged as having been radicalized and have intended to engage in violent behavior, um, and for, for uh, a reference point for listeners who are interested, I'm thinking about um, the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism at the University of Maryland. They have a database called the... Um, Pyrus, I think, or Pyrus. I'm not sure what the acronym, the acronym is pronounced, but it's P-I-R-U-S. Profiles of individual radicalization in the United States. Um, I think they have profiled more than 2,200 individuals who have um, been identified as having radicalized in the U.S. Of those 2,200, almost half are right-wing extremists. It, it's, it's not even close as to who poses the biggest threat to to American security at the moment. So much of my research, if not all of my research, is focused on the far right at the moment. If and when the far left becomes the more dominant threat in the US to personal property and to um, individuals themselves in the US, I can imagine that my attention will move in that direction. I'm interested in those who pose the biggest threat. Um, so this is a, a long-winded soapbox way of saying that both sidesing Violent extremism in the U.S. I don't think is terribly helpful in helping people understand where the threats come from. Um, I think it's useful for understanding that violence coming from any one of these groups is absolutely disgusting and terrible. But if we're trying to get a general grasp on what the biggest threat to U.S. security is by by communicating this false equivalence, I don't think it's helpful one bit. I thank you for that very good, as you called it, soapbox uh, speech, but I think it is important to get out there because I've actually come across people that have 
virtually confronted me because, you know, I might talk about more about the far right versus the far left. Um, oh, yeah. And I've gotten emails. I actually created a folder on my inbox called fan mail. And <laughs> I mean, it's not fan mail. But as soon uh, the first time I did an interview that was published, I got an email that was talking about, um, well, what about these individuals in Portland? And what about these individuals in Seattle? And I mean, I didn't respond, but if I were to respond, I would say, yes, that's terrible. They should not be doing that. But um, I'm trying to do empirical research for the greater good. And the greater good right now to protect people is to focus on stopping far right radicalization to violence. It's just it's, it's not a matter of political opinion. It's a matter of following data and the scientific method. Exactly. And I think that's what maybe individuals that are not in academia, which I know we're in the high tower and so forth, but people that are just coming, finding our research, whether it's through news reports or reading something. Right. And I, I don't, and I, we are absolutely in the high tower because I mean, I, I don't blame people for thinking that we're focusing on the right because we are left-leaning or some or politically biased. I don't blame them for thinking that at all because uh, most um, people are watching the news and seeing what's going on on TV, and that's what they come to understand it. They don't know that there is a global terrorism database where they can look up these stats. They don't know there's a profiles and in individual radicalization in the U.S. database where they can actually see these numbers. So, I mean, I don't blame them in the least for, for sending me mail saying, well, why aren't you checking that? Because they just don't have that information. And that's where I think it gets a bit difficult with the media, because I know the media needs to remain objective, but by, by kind of both sidesing it, it gives the false impression that both are a, a, an equal threat to domestic security. And right now, it's just not the case. It, it, it might change in the future. Um, historical trends show that we tend to swing back and forth between right and left. So it's altogether possible that in a couple of years, we'll be talking about far left filing groups. But right now, at the moment, um, the far right is the focus. Right. And it's the data that says that, not the researchers. So yeah. <laughs> making that disclaimer, well, why don't we talk about, we, we kind of touched on this earlier in the talk, but how your research is applicable to the real world, because I always like going back to how does this actually apply to something that can be useful outside of academia? Sure. And then also thinking about the future how is it, excuse me, applicable to new technologies that we're going to be seeing and new violent actors, as well as being in this environment of a lot of mis and disinformation that's floating around. So I think your book speaks for itself to this time period, but it's also very good for the future and what we can do to be prepared for it. I guess that's the best way of putting it. No, you're, you're absolutely right in that there, there are certain technologies that are emerging every day, which, I mean, as a researcher of terrorism are absolutely terrifying to me. The idea of deep fakes is completely terrifying to me and how they can be used. And I do mention this in the book in how terrorist groups could plausibly, because deep fake technology is not hard to replicate and hard to use, could plausibly show a relatively realistic looking clip of an American GI and a Marine, somebody um, engaging in a war crime against uh, the terrorist group's constituents, which is completely fabricated um, all the way down to the American soldier or Marine's face and their voice and things like that. Deep fake technology allows for that. Um, another area I'm very curious about, as you just said, is the proliferation of disinformation and, and how um, deliberate actors spreading disinformation, how that can that be protected against when that disinformation makes people violent. And unfortunately, um, I finished writing this book in April of 2019. Um, even since then, um, I, I didn't think it would be that quick, but we're seeing the weaponization of disinformation to the point that people are becoming violent on the basis of it right now. Um, we're seeing disinformation surrounding the results of the election um, being propagated by the president and some of the president's followers. And I mean, it's not hypothetical anymore. There are people saying that we're going to become violent because of this, whether or not they do remains to be seen, but they're saying that we're ready to become violent. Um, people like Donald Trump Jr. have said online, um, what was the, the thing he said? He said, um, get ready to engage in total war to fight the election results. 
And of course, I mean, the, the Proud Boys channels went nuts when he said that. So all these things, they, they, they do make for our, uh, a depressing landscape for what the future looks like. But luckily, um, one of the things I said earlier still holds is that these principles of persuasion and counter-persuasion, they hold across contexts and they will hold in the future. It's just a matter of understanding what those threats are beforehand so we can develop appropriate counter techniques to, to engage with them. Um, again, it's kind of my baby at the moment, but I love the idea of using inoculation to inoculate against the deep, deep fakes and, and disinformation and all manner of other stuff. So I think that that's the sort of thing I'll be testing in the next year or two. And um, following that, there's another large scale study I'm moving toward um, that gets around framing some of the problems there it gets to framing some of the problems that you mentioned and how new communication technologies pose all kinds of problems in relation to, to, to radicalization to violence. So I could talk about that for two seconds if you want, but I don't want to be pitching too much here. No, I think that would be great in the sense that the one thing we can't stop is new technology. I mean, we've seen it for hundreds of years. There's always something being developed and our world right now, it's all about, technology that brings the world together. And that is usually through communication avenues, whether it's the internet or yeah. platforms and so forth. Uh, Zoom, I mean, without Zoom, where would we be? Zoom and Skype yeah. pandemic. So yeah, please <laughs> tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I wish I bought stock in Zoom. Um, <laughs> so uh, the next book project I'm going to be working on is on a, a phenomenon that some of your listeners might know called stochastic terrorism. And stochastic terrorism is based on the idea um, that public facing figures, people who have large platforms, can make statements that on the face of it are not violent, but can be interpreted as being violent. So when Donald Trump says stand back and stand by, or when he tweets liberate Minnesota, liberate Michigan, or when Donald Trump Jr. says total war, or when Steve King, the, uh, the congressman, I think he's, a, he's either a congressman or a senator in Iowa, says something like, if there's a civil war, we have 8 trillion bullets in red states, something along those lines. So these things, when you look at them and take them at face value, they're not making, they're not calls to violence. They're not saying take those 8 trillion bullets and go shoot Democrats. It's not what they're saying. But um, the term stochastic means will reliably occur, but impossible to predict where it's going to happen. So the idea is that when somebody makes statements like that, when they have such a large platform, they're going to reach so many people that it's pretty much a sure thing that somebody is going to take that as a literal call to action when you're reaching that many people and you cannot predict when and where it's going to happen. So my next book is going to look at how some of these actors use communication technologies, including these new ones, to make these statements and what the implications of these statements are especially with respect to violence. And I mean, there are plenty of examples for it already. I was, uh, there's a website, um, uh, might be from McClatchy's if I'm remembering correctly, but it has a rundown of all these statements that Trump has said. And um, one thing that, that emerges there is that his name has been invoked by people who've engaged in hate crimes dozens of times in the last four years. So whether or not he's actually said, go engage in hate crimes, he doesn't do that. But when you call immigrants animals and you make statements that seem to dehumanize them, you're facilitating a radicalization process among some of your audience. And um, what this book gets at, it grapples with this idea that, um, that statements that are ostensibly benign have very, very dangerous consequences when they're targeted in a certain way. So that, that's what I'll be grappling with next is how, how we deal with these sorts of statements that aren't explicit calls to action, but nonetheless cause people to engage in violence. That is very exciting. And I feel like it also goes back to that the messenger is the key because of course the president of a country, whether it's the United States or elsewhere or a president's son is, is a very powerful figure and mm -hmm. very powerful messenger to their base, their audience. Uh, so what they say, say whether they can do plausible deni deniability. I cannot talk today. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard one to say. <laughs> right? It's a tongue twister. But I mean, what they say 
does matter. Unfortunately, uh, you know, you can say it doesn't, but it really does. So- yeah, yeah. It, it absolutely does. And I mean, it's one of the things I'll be grappling with in the book too, because it is something that needs to be grappled with. I'm a very, very staunch first amendment advocate and there's, there's a line somewhere that nobody knows where it is as to at what point does something stop being benign opinion and start being incitement to terrorism. So as part of the book, I'm actually going to be interviewing kind of media ethicists, philosophers, people who've studied this thing who are much smarter than me. So I can include what they think into the book, because that is a question that I think that we are really going to have to contend with in the coming years as our communication technologies get more and more complex, but somehow easier to use. There's going to be all kinds of of conflicts with respect to what we can say online versus what we should say online um, versus something that's totally benign. So these things are just going to get more complicated and we need to get a grasp on it if we're going to understand how these issues are going to affect terrorism. Fantastic. Well, at the Loopcast, if time permits, we like to give our guests a moment to maybe touch on something that we weren't able to touch on in the, in the talk, or if there's a final statement you'd really like to make or a final point. So I want to hand the floor over to you. Oh, I feel like I've had the floor anyway, Chelsea. I feel like I've talked so much. Uh, not that that's a bad thing. I just get bored of my own voice after a while. Um, let me think here. Uh, yeah, you know what? It's, it, it relates to what I was talking about earlier about kind of uh, the left versus the right and the the impression as to who engages in more violence. Because I know some right wingers will probably listen to the Loopcast and and um, push back against that. And again, I understand why they would because of what they see. And I'm not just saying that um, this is not me um, kind of implicating Fox News or other right wing outlets. It occurs on every news outlet. Um, But what I would implore listeners to do um, whenever you are researching or trying to understand issues surrounding political violence, um, they are absolutely emotionally charged and it's difficult to remain objective when you do. But if you can, if possible, try to go to the data, follow the data, look at what the data say, look at what professionals say about how often things occur, who's doing these things, and then try to understand the phenomenon from that lens. It's difficult to do, especially when you have a political vested interest in what's going on. But I think that generally speaking, um, if I can be kind of sing kumbaya and a little conciliatory we all want fewer people hurt we don't want nobody wants people to get hurt so if we can all start there and then look at the data to see who is the bigger threat at causing hurt we can start to come together and solve some of these problems in a way that doesn't seem like we're inadvertently or inadvertently is the wrong word we are um focusing too much on one side or the other because like you, Chelsea, I get those emails. Why are you only focusing on the right? And it would help for our audiences to understand that we're focusing on the right because of the data. So I I would say any listeners who aren't terrorism experts or terrorism researchers, try to find the data on these attacks. Um, Try to find the data on the arrests and you'll see what we see that um, there is a false equivalency. Um, It doesn't excuse violence from any side, but we're just trying to protect the most people that we can. Well, I think those are very important and wise words to end this show on, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Kurt, and I highly recommend our listeners read Kurt's book. It's Weaponized Words, The Strategic Role of Persuasion in Violent Radicalization and Counter-Radicalization. And I will say off the bat, it's not a staunchy academic type read. It's really easy, readable <laughs> book. He, You have some fun cases and fun comments in the book too so um it I actually think, made chuckle a couple of times and it was great it was really a fun read so i think i make fun of my dad in that book about how he goes to eat pepperoni at night or something <laughs> so there you go you can learn a little bit about kurt's personal life as well there you go but thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast. thanks chelsea